from our passage today is in Exodus 34, great passage. I'm going to begin in verse 5, reading through verse 9. No, I'm going to begin in verse 4. 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, this remarkable passage, this is what's going on in, this, in the story. In Exodus 32, the, the people of Israel, in an incredible act, they persuade Aaron, Moses' own brother, to make this golden calf, and they worship it as the God who led them out of Israel. Just incredible after all they had seen that God did to rescue them. God says to Moses, in judgment, I'm going to destroy them. But Moses, in his finest hour, takes up the mantle of intercession, and he pleads for the, for the lives of those people, moved by, by zeal for God's reputation and love for those people, Sin and all, he appeals to God, Oh God, they are your people, please spare them. God had wanted him to pray that, and he says, Yes, yes. Then last week in Exodus 33, he continues his intercession, has these three great prayers, including, God, would you please go with us? But his climactic prayer is this short, succinct, powerful request of God Lord, please show me your glory. At that point, he is not asking for anything from God. He is asking for God himself. God, I want more of you. Show me more of your glory, your splendor, your beauty, your greatness. Lord, show me your glory. He is wanting God himself, more of God. God says yes. He loved that prayer. And he answers in a rather surprising way, though. In verse 19, to the request, show me your glory, God says, I will make all my goodness, not glory, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. As if the high point of God's glory is found in his goodness more than in his greatness. Now, both reveal the glory of God, but isn't it interesting that I will show you my goodness, Moses, if you want to see my glory. At that point, God says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to make two more tablets because Moses had, 
had thrown down and smashed the last Ten Commandments. You're going to make two more tablets. Bring them up on Mount Sinai in the morning. I will meet you there. I will show you my glory. And that's what goes on. And in verse verse 5, we see that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there on the top of Mount Sinai, just Moses. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. If you will notice the word Lord, either in your Bible or up on the screen, just about all English translations, whenever it is the personal name of God, Yahweh, they translate it with, with Lord in all caps. If you see Lord in small letters, it's a different Hebrew name. It's more of a generic Adonai, master, uh, important title, but this is a personal name. This is the difference in calling God, um, uh, referring to God as God, and referring to Him as, by His name Yahweh. It's the difference in referring to me as pastor or referring to me as Jeff, my personal name. In Exodus 3, Moses had asked God, what's your name? Who should I say call me? And God reveals His name, this covenant name Yahweh. That is, He explains it. And he, and he does so uh, by simply saying, I am that I am. Moses, you want to know my name? They don't call me any name. Nobody has named me. I am. I'm the great I am. I am that I am. In other words, I am the independent, sovereign, infinite God, and no one names me. I am. It's the Hebrew verb, hayah, and the form of it, he immediately says, tell them, Yahweh, he is a cognate, a related form of that Hebrew verb, to be. And it's sort of confusing, but basically God is saying, I'm the sovereign, independent God. I am. Call me, I am. Now, back in Exodus 3, this is the name that God is to be known by as the God who rescues His people out of, out of slavery. And He rescues His people. Now, later in the passage, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, I want to see you more clearly. I want, to, I want to see who you are. And God says, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, my name, the Lord. And that's what he does. That's what he does. The next verse, it begins. The Lord, you see it, all caps, Yahweh, the Lord, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Or the Lord, the Lord. He is explaining who, who that name represents, what I'm really like. And he lists nine traits. Notice them. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So interesting. God doesn't talk about his power and his might here. Doesn't talk about his sovereignty and his greatness, but he talks mostly about his love, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, Seven of the nine traits really speak directly to his goodness. Moses, you want to see my glory? I will proclaim to you my goodness. My goodness, isn't that fascinating? The greatness of God also shows his glory. But is, it, is there something about us that we need to, to be clear on his goodness? 
Do we struggle more with his goodness than with his greatness? As a pastor of 35 years, I found that to exactly to be true, and I found that to be true in my own life. We need to understand and feel how good God is for us. He is the good God. He is the good God. When I was a young pastor, I was in my late 20s. I was living in Oregon. Gail and I were leading a church there. And I was struggling with a number of things related to mental disease, but also my spiritual life. And I realized one day, in an act of mercy, severe mercy, I realized, Jeff, you have a high view of God's greatness and sovereignty and glory. You get that. But in your heart of hearts, you don't really believe he is good and loving and, for, and tender and forgiving. Now, you preach that. You, you read that. You uh, say you believe it. But in your heart of hearts, you don't feel that. And I began a journey, a quest, a desperate quest to see God as he really is. And over the years, not real quickly, over the years, God has transformed my vision of him. I think this is very common for several reasons. I think that part of it is our natural human unbelief in the goodness of God and the love of God. Our human unbelief extends particularly to, to God's goodness and love. Secondly, life is hard. Life is painful. And our tendency is to blame God for the pain that we experience and think, oh, he must be mean. He must be severe. He must be harsh. We tend to do that. Thirdly, maybe most importantly, do you know that the main strategy of our spiritual enemy is to get you to doubt the goodness and love of God for you? Did we not see that at the first appearance of Satan in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, where he said, has God really said that? Has that mean old God really said you can't eat from any of the tree trees of the garden? Well, that's not what God had said. He was trying to get Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God to them. God's holding back on you. If God really loved you, he'd give you that. Listen, you have heard that voice all of your life and maybe not been aware of it. It is high time you're aware of it. That Satan's main strategy to ruin your life and destroy your soul is to, to convince you that God is a mean ogre, that he is a harsh taskmaster, and that he's not crazy in love and forgiveness with you. And if this morning you are like I was, and you recognize, God, I really don't see you, feel you like this, then I would urge you to do what I did and begin a desperate quest. Oh, God, change my view of you. As A.W. Tozer put it, he said, the most important thing about any human being is in your heart of hearts how you see God. Because that changes everything. That changes whether or not you will love him back whether or not you will trust him, whether or not you obey him, if you see, he is good. Here God is showing Moses and showing all of us for all eternity who he is. He begins by saying, I am the Lord, I am the God who is merciful and gracious. This is who I am, this is my nature. I am a merciful and a gracious God. Sometimes translated, I am a compassionate God and a gracious God. This is the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy primarily refers to God's love for the needy, for the hurting, for the, for the desperate. Grace primarily refers to God's love to the guilty. Mercy is his love to those who are in pain. Grace is his love to those who are in guilt. 
And they're both absolutely vital. When God sees you hurting in your marriage, in your singleness, in your physical pain, in your mental pain, in your joblessness, when God sees you hurting, his heart bleeds for you. He's got a heart of mercy. You've got a heart of mercy when you see a starving child or an abused dog. Do you have more goodness in your heart than God for you? He is a merciful God. You see it all in the life of Jesus. He is a gracious God. He, he is the, the God who, who extends grace to sinners. And he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or we would all be separated from him in hell forever. He is the gracious God. Now, now do we see God these ways? You know that last one, gracious. It's a tough one for this reason. It's because in our innate human pride and performance mentality, all of us by nature are trying to perform. All your life, you may be like me. You're trying to perform in school, perform in athletics, uh, perform in work, and perform here, and that bleeds over in the spiritual life. And we think we need to perform with God to earn His favor. And it's not so. He is the God of grace, mercy to the guilty, free gift. C.S. Lewis was at a conference at Oxford University. No, he wasn't at a conference. He was in the hallways, the lecture room, and they were having a, a conference over here, and, and they were arguing a lot about some things, and he stopped in, and he said, what's the rumpus? And they were, it was a conference on comparative religion, and they were arguing about what is the distinctive of Christianity. And he heard the, the, the issue, and he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. The difference, the main difference in Christianity and every other religion on the planet is grace. And they thought about it and realized he's exactly right. Friends, think about it. Uh, in college at Rice University, I took this uh, world religions course. Every religion on the planet except the gospel is all about doing good works to earn your way to heaven. Merit, achievement, performance. For example, Muhammad Ali got a lot of publicity in the last year or so because uh, with his death. Uh, he once said in an interview to Reader's Digest, he gave voice to what so many of us have felt. He said, one day I'm going to die, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll go to heaven. And if my bad works outweigh my good works, I'll go to hell. That is Islam. That is human nature. That is world religion, every one of them. Unfortunately, that is most of the Christian church, but it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel says this. You don't, you're not on a curve needing to do better than uh, Hitler and Stalin and a few other bad guys. But rather, the standard is not Hitler, it's Jesus Christ, and he's perfect. How you doing? You don't need to hit 300 and make the Hall of Fame. You need to hit 1,000. How you doing? We're falling pretty far short. He says, I will do for you what you could never do for yourself. I will send my own son, and he will live a perfect life in your place, and he will die on a cross and pay for your sins in your place, and you can have the free gift of life and salvation. It's called grace. It's called grace. Look, some of you have lived your whole life and thought that, was, that the way to get into heaven was through churchianity and rule-keeping and being good boys. Nobody gets into heaven that way. Your dog might get into heaven, but not you. None of us 
would get into heaven. But God says, I offer you the free gift of grace because I love you. Now, we've got to bow our knee and receive that grace. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you have never done that right now, right now, just breathe a prayer. Jesus, save me, save me. Okay, God, when he announces who he is to Moses, he leads with mercy and grace. You know, this passage in, in, Psalm, in Exodus 34 is so seminal, so foundational, that 12 other passages in the Old Testament refer back to it. They, they, none of them quoted exactly, but 12 of them quote, quote parts of it. I'm going to turn to one of those in Psalm 103, where David looks back to this chapter of, of Exodus. This is what he says. Verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his glory, his acts to the people of Israel. And then he quotes, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting exactly. And then he elaborates grace, that is, for his forgiveness to sin, sinners. Verse 9, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And we think about that, and we recognize what God is saying to me here, that all of my sins, my divorce, my failures as a parent, my bankruptcy, my ongoing addictions, all of my sins, God has removed as far as the east is from the west. Last I checked, that would be infinite. That far, that far. So well did Colin, a fabulous young worship pastor, call us a few moments ago that if you have been hanging on to some regrets and some sins, it is time to let those go. Because if you're hanging on to those and you're saying, well, God's forgiven me for all my sin, but this one over here is just so bad, I just got to keep flagellating myself and, and you know, punishing myself. You're essentially saying that the blood of Jesus Christ was not big enough to forgive that sin. What an arrogant thing to say. You mean that the blood of Jesus Christ is not big enough to forgive your sin? Are you kidding me? The God of all glory... When he died for you on the cross, he paid for all of your sins, and they are forgiven. Let those regrets go this morning if you have not ever done that. Give them to God. God is saying to Moses and to you this morning, I am a God merciful. I am a God gracious. I am a God slow to anger. That's a challenge because your parents were probably like my parents, imperfect probably like my kids' parents, pretty imperfect. And at times, I lost my temper. At times, I lose my temper. But never God, never God. Sometimes you may think that God is quick-tempered. He's quick to get on to you. Hey, cut that out. God is so patient with us, so patient. He is slow to anger. Most, I mean, uh, Martin Luther uh, 15th century reformer who had such an impact. And I take such encouragement from him because he no doubt had OCD and he survived. And 
before he came to grace, he would confess for hours on end. And uh, every little thing he could think of and more. And sometimes up to six hours. And his uh, priest, the confessor, you know, would get so tired of that. And, and once he said, man, uh, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. If you don't see God this way, slow to anger, merciful, kind and gentle, he's not angry with you. You're angry with him. Give it up. Give it up. Let it go. He's slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, he could just say he is, he's got steadfast love for you. He's got unfailing love. He's got unconditional love. He's got uh, the translators don't know how to translate it. It's so rich. He's got this uh, incredible uh, outgoing love for you. A few years ago, Francis Chan wrote that marvelous book about the spiritual life, and he called it this great title. He called it crazy love. And he's referring to God's love for you as a crazy love. Love for sin, it's crazy. He loves you so much. It's like your love for a grandchild, your love for a child. It's crazy love. It's so big. He says it is abounding in that steadfast love. Now, they just have it. He's abounding. It's like a, a, an ever-flowing fountain. Uh, you know, one of those ponds in the woodland just continually goes. It's bur bursting forth with tender love for you. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in faithfulness. Now, and look, you have some people in your life that you are particularly close to. Gail would be the main one for me and me for her. Uh, and, and we don't let each other down much, but every human being at some point or another will let us down because they're humans. But never has your God let you down, and never will he. This is what's going to happen. You don't understand all that you've gone through, and neither do I, because God is God and I'm not. I mean, there's so much in life we don't understand. But one day we're going to get to heaven. We're going to look back, and the curtain's going to be pulled, and we're going to see this. God was faithful to me every step of the way. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. That's God. Now, friends, are you, are you getting the picture of the glory of God? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, easy to live with, abounding in steadfast love, and bounding in faithfulness. And then, as if, well, they may not have heard me here adequately, he repeats the one about love. And, and he says, uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands. You know, he just said that. Why does he repeat it? I suspect we need it repeated. Guys, it's really true. God has this incredible, unconditional, crazy love for you, for you. Satan's main strategy is to get you to, to disbelieve it, to think, oh, life's so hard, God must not be good. God's holding back something I really need to be happy. It's not true. It's a lie. This is God. He's the God of love. He's the God who we read about in Romans 5, 8, that God proves his love for us in this, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or it's the love of God that we read about three verses earlier in 5, 5, that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He has not dropped a few drops. He has poured out. The word sometimes is used for a downpour. We know downpours. <laughs> okay, just think, you know, earlier this morning, you know, yesterday, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it just poured. Same word is used. God has a 
downpour of love into our hearts. Receive it. Enjoy it. Believe it. Be tickled pink about it. I mean, this is something that's good, that the God of the universe is crazy in love with me. Believe it. Believe it. It is your life. It is your life. One more of the top seven. He says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's already made clear his forgiveness, but, you know, he's got to make it clear again. In fact, he's got to make it clear by, by pulling not one, but three Hebrew terms for sin. He forgives your iniquity, your transgression, your sin. Got it? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. And then he takes guys like David and Paul and makes them the heroes of the Bible because they were murderers and they sinned. And if God can forgive them, he can forgive you. He can forgive me. They're champions of grace who believe in the grace of God. Church, do you see God this way? Do you see him this way? Now, it's interesting. He does make it clear that he is the holy God, the God, of, the God who judges. He's the judge of all the earth. The last two, he will by no means... <coughs> He will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. There are consequences to a life of rebellion against God. Don't think because God is so uh, crazy in love with you that he is soft on sin. He's the holy God. Sin must be paid for. But here's the thing. Because it sounds to me like he will by no means clear the guilty doesn't go with what we've just been reading. And it doesn't. But... Here's the solution. But for those who will turn to him in repentance and faith, those who will come to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, his forgiveness will wash over. Have you done that? Have you done that? If you have, his forgiveness has washed over you and cleansed you whiter than snow. Friends, this is the best news ever. This is not religion. This is not churchianity. This is not performance. This is not um, trying to earn brownie points. This is not... Uh, you know, if the good works that I do outweigh the bad works, this is the grace of God to sinners. The free gift of forgiveness and life and love. And we simply receive it and say thank you. God is saying to you this morning, this is who I am. Make no mistake. I am the compassionate God bursting with relentless tenderness and affection for you. I am the God who extends grace to those who do not deserve it. I am abounding in love. I don't have just a little love. I have crazy love for you. I am worthy of your complete trust because I am faithful and true. I will do what I say. I am forgiving. I will remove your sins as far as the east is and the west. But I am also the holy and just and righteous God. How does Moses respond to this? vision of the glory of God. Well, verse 8 says this, and Moses quickly bowed down his head toward the earth and worshiped. Quickly, all of a sudden, you know, he is worshiping. Oh God, you are the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Lord, I adore you and, and humble myself. I worship you. Whenever you're exposed to the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God, the only response, only fitting response is worship. One of the reasons that we celebrate communion every week is right here. 
when we have spent a half hour in the Word of God and seen a, another glimpse of God's glory, it seems to me that a fitting response is to participate in the highest form of Christian worship and go to the communion table and take these elements and remember that Jesus, the holy God, bore my sin to give me life and to worship and to breathe a prayer. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Church, you know the bottom line with this passage is that God so wants us to see him as he is. We want to worship the God who is and not be ruined by the character of the God who isn't. How do we do that? How do we see God as he is? Three quick things. One, do what Moses did. Pray for it. God, show me your glory. That would be a fine prayer every morning to pray. Lord, show me your glory. May I see you as you are in your glory. Show me your glory. Second, uh, live in the Word of God. That's where he reveals who he is. Um, you are taking in millions of words every day, or uh, not counting, uh, regularly. And uh, those words uh, are some good words and some bad words. There's some true words and some false words. There's some truths and there's some lies. But there are no words like these words. This is the living, powerful Word of God. And we need to live in it, soak in it every day, every day, and see who God is. Thirdly, not only pray for it, not only live in the, the Word of God, but thirdly, become a worshiper, because this is what happens with worship. When you fix your gaze on the glory of God and worship Him, something happens to your soul. And you're transformed over time. When I was a young preacher, and I realized this very sobering realization, Jeff, you don't really believe that I am a gracious, forgiving, tender God. That's pretty sobering for any Christian, much less a pastor. And I began a desperate journey. Oh, God, help me to see you as you are. And several things God made a part of that, including prayer and including the Word of God. But one of the things that made such a difference is I began worshiping Him with my heart. And something happens. God transforms you. I do not say sit in a large congregation while others are worshiping. That will not touch your soul. I'm not talking about watching the folks up here. I'm not even talking about participating with the congregation. You know what I'm talking about? Responding to the living God who is here. Lord, great is your faithfulness. Great. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Connect with God in worship, public and private, and he will transform your soul. Stand with me, please, church. If you're here in the room and you have never understood before the goodness and the love of God, if you have never understood grace before, if you thought you had to earn it, 
You know now. No excuses. Now is your time to breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, would you save me because I've sinned against you, a holy God. Just breathe that prayer. He'll hear it. He'll answer it. He'll give you life. Tell somebody that you did if you did. Lord God, for the rest of us, would you please give us grace to see you as you are in your glory. Amen.